Trust in financial services has been increasing. But with trust in technology companies decreasing and the pandemic accelerating the shift to digital financial services, it's more important than ever to actively build and maintain trust. In association with MyTech, we've launched a report that explores the current trust issues facing financial services brands and how they can be overcome. Head to bit.ly forward slash digital trust report 2021 to download it now. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you lots of funding rounds as Ramp joins the Fintech Unicorn Club with a new funding and valuation. Modular receives strategic investment from FIS Ventures. And the mortgage market is hotting up as SoftBank pumps $500 million into Better.com. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 520 of Fintech Insider. I'm Sarah Kachansky from 11FS, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Simon Taylor. How are you doing, Simon? I am excited. We have some great guests. There's all of the fintech happening. How are you doing, Sarah? <laughs> I am I am good. And uh, for those of you in the UK, this is Freedom Week. We've been released from lockdown, but I have to say I, I haven't been outside yet. So I'm, that's what I'm looking forward to this weekend. That's There's exciting fintech news, but I'm also looking forward to, you know, maybe maybe going somewhere other than my front room for, for the first time in months. The great outdoors, hey? <laughs> It'll rain as soon as you get out. That's what happens. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But to be honest with you, I've got umbrellas, I've got a waterproof coat, I'm ready for it. I'm British, I will do this. Um, We are, of course, not alone. We are joined, albeit remotely, by some awesome guests. So first up, we're making a welcome return. We have Miles Stevenson, CEO at Modular. Welcome back to Fintech Insider. How are you? Very good, thank you. Great to be back. Um, Pleasure to join you again. We've uh, got some exciting news from Modular, and we'll get into that shortly. But a big, big week for you as well. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very busy. Lots happening. And so, yeah, it's great to be getting to, I was going to say the beginning of the year, but it's the beginning of the second quarter already. It's the beginning of the, the financial year. Close yeah. enough. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and joining Miles, uh, making his FinTech Insider debut, we have Jeff Charles, Head of Product at Ramp. Welcome to the show, Jeff. How are you? Yeah, thanks for having me here, Sarah. Um, you've also had an exciting few weeks at Ramp, um, but we're going to dig into that now. So let's get started. So the story is that two-year-old Ramp has joined the FinTech Unicorn Club. Um, so Ramp, which is a corporate credit card startup, has confirmed $115 million in new funding from D1 Capital Partners and Stripe. The round brings the total venture and debt financing raised by Ramp to $320 million and raises its valuation to $1.6 billion, making it a unicorn. Uh, Ramp's USP includes the deployment of card usage analytics designed to help companies identify wasteful spending. Over the past six months, transaction volume on Ramp has grown by approximately 400%, with a third of Ramp customers switching over from American Express and more than 90% of customers adopting Ramp as a comprehensive spend management platform, replacing expensive I concur or manual alternatives, by which I think they mean spreadsheets. Um, Jeff, obviously going to come to you first on this. Congratulations on the new round. Um, did I get all that right? <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 you know, what, what are you going to do with this funding? Can you tell us a bit more about it? Thanks, Sarah. You got it perfectly right. Um, great summary of, of what we're about. It's a, it's a convoluted space with a lot of different players and different tools. So I think I think you did great. And, and how I would summarize it is we're the only credit card and spend management tool that helps companies spend less. And we kind of anchor back to that goal around aligning incentives between the corporate card provider, the software and the finance teams to grow companies more sustainably. 
So in, in terms of how we're going to use the capital, we're really going to invest in our R&D resources. So we are a product-driven, engineering-driven culture. And uh, it turns out that software engineers in the United States, especially brilliant ones, are quite expensive to hire and retain. Uh, so uh, we, we are going to heavily invest in, in, in bringing great minds to continue to push the, the technology aspect of our product and the, and, and the user experience of it. Um, we're also going to heavily invest in our go-to-market functions. So um, h- hiring more sales folks, account managers and partnerships and going super deep with other financial partners in the ecosystem. That sounds really exciting. And, and just, you know, a, a further question on that. I noticed that Stripe is, is one of your new investors. I mean, what, what's that like? Is that, is that really exciting for, for you to have Stripe come on board, given, you know, the, the success they've had? And again, particularly recently when it comes to, to raising money, they know a thing or two about that. We're super excited to be working with Stripe. Um, obviously, it's kind of a match made in heaven. Uh, Stripe is a extremely product-driven and engineering-driven company that cares a lot about the technology they're building and the user experience that they're building and rebuilding it the right way. Um, so we couldn't really think of a better partner through that. Um, as you think about Stripe, they, they're focused on increasing the GDP of the internet, and we are um, going to be hooking up to, to that vision, um, really focusing on, on finance teams and really leveraging their technology. So I'm super, super excited to have them now investors in ramps so that we align incentives and kind of uh, go to market together. And, and the sky's the limit in terms of that. Yeah, it's, um, it's as you say, it's a match made in heaven. And I think the interesting thing is that that both of you um, are looking to serve the sort of the small business space. And I think that that is a space that sort of, uh, well, obviously Stripe serves a lot of people, but they do they do help small businesses in particular, particularly over the last 12 months. And I think, you know, that's an area that we've seen a huge amount of activity in, um, particularly over the last 12 months, a lot of investment coming in, a lot of new products. I mean, opening up to the, to the wider group, why, why do you think that's happening now? Why do you think there's this sudden upsurge um, in investment in, in financial tools for, for small businesses. I don't know who wants to go first on that. Uh, Miles, do you want to go first and then Simon, I'll come to you? Yeah, I, I think the answering your precise question about why now, I think that's a you know, really challenging one, but we're seeing lots of similar themes. And so uh, you, you've talked about it a lot on this show, the Capability and Innovation Fund, which you know, we're, we're part of and we're, we're investing um, the grant that we got from that, particularly in SME capabilities um, uh, around um, payments access and payment services. Um, so, so I think there's been a, a massive underinvestment over the years and lack of focus on SMEs, which maybe that's just coming to a head now. And, and, and therefore, the, you know, the, the corner, you're know, t- starting to turn the corner. Um, and, and therefore, you know, great businesses like you're talking about are starting to see the opportunity uh, come to fruition. And it's something that I, I particularly have an affinity with having started a business back in 2008 called Corporate Pay that was doing similar things. And, and we were perhaps too early for the market. Um, and, and I just don't think uh, um, that we were at the right time. But now it's great to see all of this you know, coming to market in a, in a fantastic way. Yeah, I mean, and maybe not the right time uh, f- for that product then. But um, you know, you've you've not you've not exactly sat on your laurels since. So uh, <laughs> it's it's great to see the space finally being served. Um, Simon, you, you had a point you wanted to make. Yeah, I think just um, generally the sort of growth business sector was generally woefully underserved. And we saw Brex and we've seen um, many others come into the space uh, over the past couple of years. We saw TeamPay and Airbase and there's lots of folks trying to solve for that space. But I'm interested in in some of the the cultural aspects of what you've built, Jeff. Uh, I mean, you guys built um, expense integration into Slack. It's the kind of thing that I imagine a large bank would never think of. But why do you think those things really matter to your users and make a difference? It's a good question, Simon. 
Yeah, I think that the so fintech has focused like a lot on the consumer side of things and 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 building incredible consumer fintech apps, and then the attention has has shifted a little bit towards like, well, you know, small business owners or CEOs are consumers, and when they're thinking about their spend in organizations, they're thinking about their money um, as well. And so, um, you know, the founders of Ramp came from uh, you know they they started a company called called Paribus to help individuals save money automatically. Um, and they're bringing kind of that that savings aspect to um, to the founder persona, to the CFO persona, the VP of finance, the controllers, et cetera. And we're seeing we're seeing a huge alignment in terms of, of that incentive. So I think that the the you know to answer your question, Sarah, the the fact that there's so much attention in this space is because there's a movement that happened in consumer that's bringing into the small business space, and it's much easier now to compete against large financial institutions like MX with the arrival of, of APIs, of platforms, and it essentially enables to spin up a lot of different types of financial services. Um, and so our approach culturally is to um, think about delight and think about automation in every single thing that we do. Uh, we don't try to replicate um, ev- everything, but for example, uh, we want to meet the finance person where they're at. So that's why, for instance, Slack was a, was a great one. We, we saw that you know a lot of spend on our card was was, was Slack uh, subscriptions, and we said, okay, well, you know, you know, if that's the case, and and if people are answering Slack messages and approving expenses, um, why not put it directly into Slack? So a lot of it is is thinking and listening to to users, which which banks are are, are poor at doing because they don't necessarily have that muscle. Um, uh, or 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 the attention span. I think I think that's a point as well that, that the M so SMBs are generally underserved, but it's the M's to, to Simon's point, the kind of the ones that have gotten out of the one person band, the two people in a garage space, and going into that. You know, okay, we've got ten people, we've got twenty people, we've got thirty people, and they're they're just even even more underserved than the one person person bands, if that makes sense. I think um, I think it's you know that's that's kind of where we're seeing a lot of this growth. Um, you're, you're nodding at me <laughs> clearly. Clearly, you agree. I was going to say, was that was that what you set out? Was that the audience you set out to target that that particular niche, or or did that kind of evolve as those being the people who were most in need of your services? When we launched, we we had no uh, go to market strategy. Um, we we just <laughs> launched our, our product and we we saw where it resonated, and and part of that is is kind of testing, uh, you know, walking in a dark room with a flashlight, and 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 then the 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 good the, the traction that we've been seeing. Um, I'll kind of give the, a perfect example of one of the customers saying this. That he had this picture of someone walking down the aisle saying, who's got the Amex? I need to pay this vendor, right? And, and that moment, that friction was like, you have, you're using plastic cards instead of virtual cards. You're using one plastic card across the organization because Amex underwrote the business owner who is liable for paying them back. And, and, and people need to share this plastic card to make payments um, and they have no idea who's spending on it, why they're spending on it, and they have no idea, you know, where the receipt is. So that was like the magical moment. And that typically happens to your point, Sarah, when you hit, you know, 10-ish employees like that friction. But the, the friction keeps going. I mean, then it's around approvals and PO and AP and all of that. And so um, we're, 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 we found that product market fit in that middle sec- section, um, built a tool that also enables CFOs and, and even CEOs early on to, to adopt, and then we're expanding into more of the mid-market side segment. I think I think I've actually, that has actually happened at 11FS in the early days. I think I was employee number like 30, and um, the, the one Amex belonged to our CEO, David, and he'd wander around going, has anybody seen my Amex? And, and it was his Amex <laughs> that had been passed around to pay for a flight or something. Um, Simon, you wanted to jump in there. And, and that Amex was tracked inside of our zero accounting package, funnily enough, as well. So like the weird 
things that you have to do when you're that size of business. And I, and I do think this is the value left on the table by the incumbent banks of all of these problem spaces if you've never been in a growing business. I love the fact that your roadmap is almost exclusively things that somebody thought of in a bank but never did because they couldn't prioritize it or the business case didn't make sense. But the business case for great product, the business case for solving customer problems has never been greater in this in this pandemic world. Um, I'm curious as to you know what's next. I mean, you guys have a ton of momentum. I don't know if you have any figures that you want to share on in terms of your momentum and growth, but but where does this, where does this go for you now, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, I, I think percentages is kind of a, an easy way to talk about growth, especially if, if you're a small company and, and, and growing fast. Um, I mean, we're, we're seeing you know, double digit growth every month um, and, and, and doing well. And obviously these funding announcements help there as well. I think that the focus for us is going to continue identifying pain and solving pain. And I think, Simon, to your point around, it's hard to, to prioritize software. Banks see credit cards and software as two separate things. Um, and they've tried to force a consumer-like product like a credit card into the business space completely wrong. And so we really think that that our wedge is the card, but our, our, our strength is the software. And that, that real-time reconciliation is something that only we can provide. It won't be provided with something syncing to a concur or a zero. Um, and so we're, we're continuously exploring how far can we get with this embedded experience. So I'll give you an example, right? How do we codify a company's expense policy so that once they swipe their card, it automatically declines anything that's out of policy. Um, so lunch on weekends or, or, or taxis uh, before 9 p.m., right? Those are, those are things that could be are, are not possible with the, the, the technology we're building. And, and furthermore, how do we expand into not just the card space? We are seeing like a, a very strong growth in terms of the virtual card adoption of, of B2B payments. Um, which we're writing, um, but there is there is still a ton to do in terms of ACH and check and disrupting that space. And then finally, you know, as COVID kind of hopefully leaves us um, um, or, or, or society kind of comes back to somewhat of a normal, although I'm sure it'll always be forever different. How, how, what does travel look like? And, and how do we essentially align incentives of, of individuals um, to be responsible with regards to the travels that they book and within policies. And so there's a, a lot of interesting things there that we can also do with card authorization around, around saving people money, around negotiating, around doing price drop guarantees, et cetera. So there's a lot of exciting things that we're exploring there. Well, we really look forward to hearing more about them as they happen. Um, but for now, we're going to move on to the next story, uh, which is that Modular has received strategic investment from the venture arm of FIS. So payments as a service provider Modular has secured new investment from FIS Ventures. Um, FIS plans to leverage Modular's API-based payments infrastructure to facilitate and automate real-time business-to-business payments in the UK and Europe as part of FIS's broader real-time payment strategy. Modular is tapping into the massive business-to-business payments digitization opportunity by working with software platforms that serve small and medium-sized businesses. Right on topic. Um, Asif Ramji, I hope that's pronounced correctly, Chief Growth Officer at FIS, comments, working with Modular will be able to help our clients in the UK and EEA markets accelerate their journey to digital payments, as well as work towards delivering a suite of new global real-time payment propositions. Uh, Miles, obviously coming to you first on this one. Um, First of all, can you give us a quick overview of what Modular is? What does payments as a service mean sort of tangibly um, as far as you're concerned? Yeah, sure. And it can mean many different things to many di- different people, but I'm trying to sort of set some context to what we mean by it. So, so we think of it as we're a payments platform and we enable our clients and partners to integrate 
payments into their software, their business platforms to to broadly do three things: um, automate, control existing payment flows, so it can be receivables, payables, etc. Secondly, embed payments in customer journeys, and that's typically our our partners, um, a whole raft of partners around payroll, accounting software, etc. And and thirdly, enabling our clients or partners to build new propositions, so building on us as the if you like the infrastructure or the tech behind the tech, and, and we're doing that across. Um, a growing number of, of clients and, and names that people would recognize, such as Intuit QuickBooks or, and Sage and, and, and Revolut. So um, that, that's how we think about uh, payments as a service. And, uh, and you know, what are you going to do next then? Because that sounds like, that sounds like quite, a, quite a lot to be getting on with. But um, with this new funding and, and obviously with FIS being a strategic partner, obviously there's you know, a little bit more to it than just giving you the money and saying off you go. <laughs> so you spend that on what you like. Um, what, are, what are the plans for, for yourself and, and for working with FIS? Yeah, it's um, re- really, as, as you said, I mean, money is always um, good and important and helps us invest um, in, in the business and growing it. Um, um, but really uh, using that strategic partnership to to continue to re- really the themes that we've set out for growth for this year and, and firstly going broader and deeper in um, existing markets. And so we started in the UK and in particular market verticals and going deeper into those. And the broader part is identifying new market verticals. So we found particular um, use cases and product market fit in, in payroll and accounting software um, in, in, in travel subjects, obviously, to the, the, the volume coming back um, and, um, and areas like property management as well. So, so going deeper into those, delivering more capability, more functionality, um, but identifying um, new sectors. And then another big area for us is we've, we've largely been UK focused and, and we, we made the, the strategic decision to go deep in the UK. So really build out a a comprehensive payment platform, um, delivering many different payment types, getting things like direct access, so one of the few with few non-bank uh, providers with direct access to the Bank of England, um, you know, except there's m- many examples of that. Um, and we've started supporting our clients and partners that we acquired here in Europe. Um, and, and we've sort of you know, put that on a, obviously a firm foundation post-Brexit with a, an equivalent license with the Central Bank of Ireland. And um, so now a big, big part of this year is now going deeper on the European payment stack and also starting to expand out into, into Europe as well. So I think that's going to keep us um, busy in 2021 and then work out you know, what we start to do for further expansion um, after this year. And I guess, uh, interestingly, and perhaps Jeff can speak to this as well, I wonder if, you know, given the space that both of you are operating in, you know, Miles, particularly as you look at the business-to-business payment space, um, we business-to-business payments have sort of historically lagged behind. We sort of covered that a, a little bit when we were talking to Jeff about how these these kind of business services or services, particularly for those smaller businesses, have been underserved. Um, do you think that the the events of the last 12, maybe 14 months now, um, have accelerated the, the need for the products and services that, that you offer? You know, has it, has it you know, this, I hate, hate to say drive towards digital, but you know what I mean, the kind of the, the, the forcing of the hand, I suppose, to update some of those services and systems that perhaps people have previously just gone, oh, it works, it's fine. Um, is that something you've seen? And, and do you think that that's had a big impact? Yeah, we, we, we've seen it from some really practical, you know, what you might think of small examples, such as, it, for, for example, with some of our accounting software integrations with accountancy firms. Pre- previously, before using our services, there'd have to be in an office to to manage and pay payroll, and clearly they they couldn't do that through the last last year. So actually, having a fully automated solution that you could use 
um, that's all um, cloud, you know, integrated and, and hosted in the cloud has enabled them to do that. Um, and they haven't had to worry about it. So there's some real practical examples down to a business that's just paying um, 20, 30 employees, um, which is really, really good. Through to, I think it's um, you know, crystallizing or, or encouraging or maybe even forcing people to make decisions in larger organizations about what do they do about the the digital transformation and, and saying, actually, yeah, we do need to get onto it. So a different dynamic to what you'd see in the um I guess, consumer world and changing behavior, but people are now saying, yeah, I do need to get on with those decisions, um, which has been you know, good for the, the B2B market. Mm. And Jeff, did you want to comment on that as well, as, as I'm sure you have an opinion and, and maybe different in the US, but uh, the pandemic has still had an impact there. Yeah, I mean, I agree, I agree with everything Miles said. Um, you know, if you think about check payments, which need to die, um, it, it it's the technology <laughs> that just keeps on giving. But when you're paying a business with a check, they receive the check in their office uh, and they, they 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 cash the check. I mean, that doesn't happen anymore, right? No one's in the office checking the mail. And so um, it is it is uh, definitely accelerating the trends. Furthermore, I think procurement looks different now. I mean, you have different individuals who are now at their homes um, and we've seen a proliferation of SaaS tools just in general across businesses. I mean, you have uh, everyone's you know either on Zoom, but there's a ton of different collaboration tools, and all of which need to be moved in the cloud because now you're working uh, cross-functionally um, in the cloud. And so there's a lot of SaaS spend, and that SaaS spend is it is now being done via uh, virtual cards and, and 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 digital payments. And I think that is only going to become increasingly important as people see the value of of real-time reconciliation of of strong you know L3 L4 data on on Visa networks or Mastercard networks. And I think. That's only going to become increasingly, increasingly important. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Sorry, Simon, were you waving at me, or were you just no? No, I was, I was, <laughs> I was listening along intently. But, I, but I do think it's, it's a great point about uh, how once you've got access to the data, Jeff, you can do much better things with it. And Miles, uh, once you've got great APIs as a builder, you can start to create the company you want to create, rather than um, sort of dealing with the infrastructure that you happen to have received or the software you happen to have used. And, and I'm, I'm interested as, as you look at the market, you know, it's going to be an interesting couple of years for Europe. I think the US has got you know, Stripe that's done a lot with issuing now when you've um, had uh, this, the guys like Synapse out there for quite some time. You know, we've had some players in Europe like Railsbank and yourself, um, but it's all been sort of um, quite geographically limited. So as you look into Europe, what are your priorities as you start to think about expanding and what do you think the value is going to be for the for the non-UK based clients in, in the short term? And I just want to add to that question, how difficult is it? How much more difficult is it to do it cross-border? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a big challenge, which is why we've been um, very focused on making sure we had a firm base here and, and got to some you know, sense of scale. I, I hesitate to say two scale because we believe there's so much opportunity still to, still to go. Um, but you know, I, I think firstly that um, point you make, Simon, I, I just you know, really love that because it's why we um, started the business around the, the software you, you get given or the integration you get given or, or you feel, you're made to feel um, lucky that you were given that access by a bank versus actually giving something people would like. And, and that was our experience in the previous business I mentioned, that we fought, you had to fight to almost get access. And then when you had it, you were given it in a way that they wanted versus the way you wanted and could build a business. That's the really the core hypothesis of why, why we exist. But you know, to, to answer your, 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 your question about the European expansion, um, it's why we have... You know, started and focused on the UK, and it's why we're the next step. We 
We're looking at markets that have commonalities across Europe, so we can operate on a, a pan-European basis um, uh, initially. Um, so um, financial services um, and travel are good examples where there are those commonalities. And then what we're um, trying to do next is look at where we have specialised in the UK, for example, in payroll. Um, the learnings there of how we specialise, what we've learned, not how we replicate those in Europe, because clearly they're very different. So um, managing payroll in France is very different to managing payroll in the UK. But what questions do we need to ask? What type of distributors do we need? What sort of partnerships do we need? Um, and approaching it in that way. So we're, we're trying to be you know, particularly you know, thoughtful about it and where we go about it. But as you say, there's a big opportunity and it's very early stage, but it is very different. It has the, I think we have the benefit of being able to passport um, now from Ireland um, across Europe, um, but there's the um, region or the country differences that we need to be very aware of. And, and just before we before we, we wrap up this section, just, I mean, that, that's something, Miles, that we talk about a lot on the show is that people think, oh, it's Europe, you know, everything. It's all the same. And it, it's so, it's so not. It's, it's so, you know, different culturally. I mean, I just wonder, Jeff, if you had anything to add to that about when we talk about expansion and, and you know, how you approach it. I mean, there's a huge advantage about being in the U.S., right? We have 300 million people. They all speak the same language, uh, more or less. And and there's there's very little regulatory overhead, um, apart from maybe small uh, small dollar lending that is a statewide. So that's that's why there's a lot, a lot of unicorns very fast in the United States. It is a competitive advantage of us of us uh, being a, a larger country with a, with a higher TAM that uh, that doesn't necessarily need you know s- strong regulatory uh, cross border and, and, and compliance. And so uh, v- we are very thankful to have you know 32 million businesses in the United States that that can that can be customers of, of Ramp. Um, and, and there's a, there's plenty of runway there. So, uh, not really exploring, uh, expanding, uh, internationally yet. Um, there's, there's a lot of, you know, lookalikes, uh, across, across the world and, and we, we, we do wish them best and, and, and we advise them. Um, I think it's, it's great to keep that network going. Um, and ultimately, uh, you know, we'll expand when, when we hit our, hit our mark, but I think the opportunity in front of us in the United States is, is, is unprecedented. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's something that, you know, is, is one of the obvious differences between operating in, in Europe or with even one country within Europe and, and the US. But um, for both of you, we, we look forward to seeing uh, your next steps and your expansion plans, wherever they may be. Uh, but for now, we're going to take a quick pause. We'll be back very shortly. 11FS is supported by Banking Circle. Connect to the fastest, most cost-efficient and transparent payment solution available in the market. Our brand new podcast is here. In Under the Hood, we lift the lid on the banking infrastructure that's shaking up the financial services industry. In partnership with Synapse, we'll explore a different area of banking tech every Thursday and talk to experts around the world. Head to your favorite podcast app and follow Under the Hood to catch the latest episode. Okay, welcome back. Our first story this half is that China has created its own digital currency. Uh, So China's version of a digital currency will be controlled by its central bank, which will issue the new electronic money. It's expected to give China's government vast new tools to monitor both its economy and its people. By design, the digital yuan will negate one of Bitcoin's major draws, anonymity for the user. The People's Bank of China has said the central bank will limit how it tracks individuals. 
Mm -hmm. uh, in what it calls controllable anonymity. Uh, Beijing is also positioning the digital yuan for international use and designing it to be untethered to the global financial system. Okay, Simon, uh, you know an awful lot more about crypto and digital coins than I do. So please um, <laughs> kick us off on this one. What can you tell us about it? What does it mean? Does it have wider implications? Yeah, it's always hard uh, observing China from outside of China because you, you have this uh, horrible habit of, of seeming remarkable uncultured because it looks very different when you're there than when you're inside it. But then the the key thing here is as a central bank digital currency is very different to the digital currencies out in the wild. In other words, um, much like the, the coins and notes in your pocket um, that are printed on a printing press somewhere, this is a central bank doing the same thing, but with digital coins that would sit in a digital wallet. Um, and it's a little bit different to a bank account. So uh, in a bank account, there's actually a database somewhere in which a bank is storing a record of my balance, this is a little bit different. The, the money actually moves between different wallets, different phones, different devices. So it feels a lot more like cash. So for China, there's a number of obvious benefits in the short term. You know, they see uh, some real practical benefits in terms of, you know, that you've got some very large payment mechanisms uh, in Ali and uh, WeChat that may be uh, a, a little bit too big, a little bit concerning. Uh, and, you know, you see similar things happening with competition concerns in Europe and, and people worried about Facebook Libra, there was there's absolutely some sense to that. So they're trying to make things like everyday bill payments easier. They're trying to do things like financial inclusion. But the domestic aims aren't really the the key for me in China's central bank digital currency. Actually, if you look at China, much like a lot of Europe, it is subject to what is frankly the US dollar global system. And if you had another way of moving money around the world across border that was digital, that competed with the old world of financial services that uses SWIFT and uses the dollar and uses the banking system, maybe when you're dealing with Africa, when you're dealing with Europe, when you're dealing with the rest of Asia, this would be a really uh, good geopolitical advantage uh, and a way to move money around the world that's frictionless, but also gives some policy control. So there's so some questions there about is it a threat to the dollar? Um, and is this why people are now talking about central bank digital currency? So lots to think about there, lots to unpack. Um, but there's, yeah, there's the domestic piece of it. And then there's the international piece. How might it work internationally? This is me being stupid. I, I, don't, I don't fully understand uh, this area very much at all. But how would you, if you had a digital one, where would, would you send it? Would it have to be sent to a wallet that somebody in another country had that was set up to accept that? And is that how it would work? Or... Yeah, I believe that's what they're envisioning. And, and there's the consumer element of it, and then there's the institutional element of it as well. So it, it essentially becomes another payment rail. It starts to almost look a bit like PayPal in the early days. You take your regular old currency, and now you're inside of this system. You can transact with anybody inside of this system. But actually, if I'm going to do a very large deal with um, small African country, small country at another part of the world, um, it, then I would potentially want them to use and incentivize them to use this payment mechanism because it's in my interest. So uh, there's a lot still to be worked out. They're still very much trialing it. It's still very much academic. I think there's 200,000 users, which for, for China's scale is, is very, very small. Um, but we'll, we'll see if that takes off. So I think that's the current thinking, but that could still change. They've put lots of papers out about a tiered system as well, where it could run through the banks and uh, they, they get wallets and you control them through different apps. That way, it could still work with the big tech companies. Companies, they're, they're still finding their feet. 
which is why I think it's confusing. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like they're, they're one of the first people to get this far with this, uh, you know, unless I've, I've misunderstood other other organizations and countries' experiments with, with central bank issue digital currencies. Are you, Simon, you're going to correct me on that? <laughs> no, 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 you're absolutely correct. The only thing I'd say is there are obviously other stable coins in the wild that are not issued by a central bank. So I think about um, Tether, USDT. I think about um, USDC, the um, US dollar coin coming from Coinbase and Circle. There are ways to move money around the world that feel almost frictionless, that feel digital, that are not issued by a central bank. That's going to be quite interesting to watch because you've got this Chinese central top-down model. The European central bank is trying to develop a digital euro. The US actually has a bit of a history of co-opting the private market. So if you think about Visa and MasterCard, especially Visa, it's it's low-key a bit of an arm of the state. You know, you regulate it into existence, into legitimacy, and actually you can start to manage uh, manage that through the rest of the world. Will we start to see the market solve it in the US in a way that maybe China wouldn't wouldn't go for? Yeah, that's interesting. We, we, as you say, we see a lot of innovation in, sold by the market in the US, which is sold by regulation elsewhere. I think open banking and open finance is another one. Um, Jeff, you were, you were nodding along there with a lot of what Simon had to say. What are your thoughts on this? Maybe it's actually a question for Simon. Like when I hear about a, a government controlled uh, cryptocurrency, <laughs> how is that different than the yen itself. I mean, when, when you think about like the, if they can if they can manage you know production of of of, of these coins, how is that different than printing? Right, like the the the, the value of of crypto um, or things like Bitcoin is that there is a, a a finite supply, so you're not at risk from any monetary policy or inflation, and it is um, a storage of value that is much more efficient than than the gold standard or or any type of, of a printing press. And so, I'm curious, like. How this is any different, and and if so, um, really, realistically, this move is simply true to potentially, uh, you know, in, in, improve their 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 stance in the world. I mean, ultimately, like the, the reason why the, the yen isn't the the standard for how money is exchanged is to the advantage of the Chinese government, so that um, they are constantly, you know, cheaper than the U.S. dollar to be able to uh, to have a a, a strong. Uh, influx in, in in terms of their their trade agreements. So there there is like a lot of a, a lot of politics involved there. But I'm curious, Simon, like how how would this be any different uh, than than what happens today? And is this just a, um, an oversight on our part? No, no, not at all. I think it would look and feel very similar um, to for most users in most use cases. So I think you're you're spot on. Um, the Swedish um, central bank, the Riksbank, did a really good um, paper in the in the last week or so where they looked at the material benefits of, of actually doing it. And one of the major ones was simply offline transactions. If you have no network connectivity, if you're in rural China, which is still quite a large percentage of the population, those offline transactions continue to work in this more decentralized model um, and can continue to be effective. When you have local authorities that have to deal with local people and you are trying to push cash out of the system, which is subject to a lot of crime, which is subject to a lot of fraud, uh, this actually gives you an ability to trace what's happening in the system. Now, that sounds really scary from an anonymity standpoint, but the other side of being able to see what's happening in the system is you can set policy around financial inclusion. So for every negative, there's also a positive. Like imagine if I had the data about what was happening 
happening in the system, how money was moving through the system, I can start to do interesting things with, with policy from there. So I do think there are some you know, pros for it, um, but you have to consider who they are and what they want to achieve versus who wrote the Bitcoin white paper and what they wanted to achieve. It, it is clearly a different use case, a clearly a, a different set of benefits. All right. Well, I think that's going to be one that we're definitely going to have to watch and learn from. It sounds like it's, you know, as we said, it's one of the early movers. So there's a lot to be learned from it. I think also to, to Simon's point, you know, looking at China from the outside in can can always seem a little bit puzzling. Um, and so we need to wait and see see what comes out of it. Um, okay, on to our next story. And I'm I'm not sure I'm happy about reading out this headline, but I will do so anyway, and then we will discuss it. Mortgage is suddenly sexy as SoftBank pumps $500 million into Better.com at a $6 billion valuation. So Better.com is a digital mortgage provider and it's raised the $500 million round from SoftBank. Uh, the new valuation is up 50% from the $4 billion it was valued at last November when it raised $200 million in a Series D financing. The investment brings Better.com's total funding raised to over $900 million since its 2014 inception. The COVID-19 pandemic, historically low mortgage rates and the general further in venture funding has been credited with the appetite for this new funding round. Um, okay, does anybody think mortgages are ever going to be sexy? Let's just start with that. Or is, is, is this just a step too far? I'm all for them. Having just bought a house, um, I could really do with that. And I, I, my my short take on this one is: during the pandemic, branches were closed. Most people were still buying mortgages through some analog channel. To have something that was entirely digital just makes a ton of sense. And every bank has been trying to shift to being 100% straight through digital processing on mortgages. And Better.com has been you know, leading the way on that for, for, for quite some time. But I always think about there's so much more to it than getting the mortgage. There's the whole like being able to save up for your deposit. There's figuring out where you're going to live. There's managing moving day. There's dealing with the lawyer the realtor, the everybody involved, the, the utility switching. There's just so much pain around the move that I think these folks like this are actually really well set up to add value mm. well beyond just making a mortgage frictionless. And I think that maybe that's what they're seeing here. I think the interesting thing about Better.com as well is that it's actually um, it's actually the lender, whereas a lot of what the innovation we've seen so far in the UK around mortgages has been, they've been digital brokers, which are great, um, but they haven't done much of the lending themselves, apart from Habito. And and Habito, I would say, is one of the, the leaders in the mortgage market, digital mortgage market in the UK. So they have those value-added services. They have Habito Plus, which is brilliant. I've actually used it myself. And this is, you get a person who does all the all the liaising for you. They speak to the solicitor and the surveyor, and they, they ask all those difficult questions that you might be too nervous to do yourself. And um, and then, of course, they've brought out their own uh, you know, underwritten mortgages in the, in the last few months as well. So I think um, the point being that, that mortgages are, are hugely ripe for disruption, but they, they seem an, an awful long way behind. I mean, uh, Jeff, am I right in saying that perhaps this digital journey is like uh, digital mortgages are slightly further ahead in the US, or, or is it it's still something that's you know incredibly traumatic and, and nobody ever wants to go through it again? 
I think for anyone not on better, it's probably a very traumatic experience. Um, there's a reason why, you know, closing costs on homes are like 10 to 20% of the, of the, of the housing costs. And that's the inefficiency in the system, right? Uh, the person doing the analysis of the house, uh, the insurance, uh, the, the, the leases, the, the agreements, the signatures, all these things. And so, um, I, you know, as a customer of better and, 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 and actually a, a friend of some of the folks that work there, um, they, they're, they're really digitizing the entire process and removing a ton of friction. And I think that they're riding the wave in terms of the digitization. They're riding the wave in terms of the fact that more people are buying homes now. You know, you, we've all sit in our homes, in our tiny apartments in, in, in New York City, where I am, and looking at, you know, the the, the, the nice homes in, in Pennsylvania um, that are, are much more cheap. And, and, and the fact that now you can work wherever you want. Um, and that might actually be a trend that continues, given the efficiencies that most most companies have seen, at least at least for for workers that 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 can work from home, that are privileged enough. So um, there's a trend here, and I think I think they're writing it and writing it really well. You're you're actually um, entitled to give that testimony as well as a, as a better customer. That's I didn't realize you were before I asked the question. So um, <laughs> that's that's really good to hear. And um, Miles, what what are your thoughts on this? I mean, do you think that you know mortgages are the next the next big area to be disrupted? Do you think they're ripe for disruption? It's it's not a market that I, I know particularly well, but but you know some thoughts that um, I, I see some parallels to what we've seen in the in the payments industry and what we were talking about earlier around sort of infrastructure. And, and it sort of makes me wonder when you look at the the main mortgage providers in in the UK. So you know, it really down into the you know, traditional building societies. Do, do they have access to the infrastructure that enables them to change this? And 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 therefore, um, are the providers? Will there be providers out there that can help them go through that change um, to, to to make it happen and, and take the friction out of the process? Um, we, we're seeing there's a there's a business in our one of our investors' portfolio called Kudu, who are um, looking at it from that perspective, um, how they, how they actually enable those, those existing institutions change the journey. Um, so so yeah, maybe that's a, a different sort of angle on the on the market, similar to what we're seeing from a um, payments infrastructure point of view in in that market as well. I think that's going to go through a lot of lot of change, and perhaps there's a nice coming together of some of the um, Payments as a service, and, and maybe there's a mortgage a mortgage system as a service. Uh, is the that is something that we've actually seen. Um, there's a company over in Australia that does it, and I can't remember the top of my head. But Simon, you probably have another example. Yeah, Blend.com is the obvious example. They've been hugely successful. Um, and then there's there's obviously Amount.com. They they work with like traditional lenders, and they're the vertically integrated SaaS that takes care of all of the KYC, all of the documentation, all of the underwriting. They have this thing called uh, Lender Copilot, which is you know talk talk in real time. And if you've just had all of your branches closed and you can't do any mortgage business, this verticalized SaaS that can take care of all of that for you is really, really good. The one thing I need to talk about when I'm um, talking to uh, senior executives, though, is be careful giving all of your technology real estate to one supplier. Like, think about how you're going to have software optionality. I mean, to Jeff's point earlier, I think the the future of fintech and finance is that really good marrying of like really good product and really good software engineering. And if you're not able to build that discipline, then this is a good uh, kind of uh, sticking plaster. 
but you're going to have to build that skill at some point, I think, to really differentiate for your customers. Yeah, I think it's um, exactly to your point. I think it's this this back-end space that needs completely rethinking. And on everything that goes along with that, you know, to Jeff, to your point, culture, but also processes, you know, rethinking how you actually, how, what, what does a mortgage look like? Why do we have all these steps, particularly in the UK? Why am I paying that person that much money to sign that piece of paper? That doesn't make any sense. You know, all these these archaic processes that that need to be pulled back and then it makes all that digitalization so much easier. Um, I just wanted to get people's thoughts on on SoftBank perhaps here because SoftBank hasn't had a a, a great um, reputation or, or media representation perhaps would be fairer in the last few months. I mean, would you would you still take money from SoftBank? <laughs> is it is it, you know, still making good bets? What, 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 what do you think? I mean, I may be leading you there, but I, I just thought people's, it's interesting to see them continuing to pump money into companies, I guess, so. As the one that's not um, recently raised or about to raise, um, I think I'm, I'm happy to, to maybe have a go at this because I, I, I felt Jeff and Miles like, oh. But we, we take, yeah, money's always good. You know, money's always yeah, good. No, yeah, I think money's good. But, uh, th- you know, obviously with, with WeWork and a few other things, they, they got some bad press. But with what's going on with Grab now and the SPAC and w- with an investor in, investment in Oak North, who's who's one of the more sturdy fintechs and, and one of the more well-known and profitable, yeah, this is uh, – always something that generates headlines sometimes a little bit controversial um but actually the um, this feels like if if you're going to bet on something better.com does feel like just a really good house in a really nice area as fintech goes i know that sounds crazy to to think about that there's there's um a more conservative investment in fintech right now given how hot the space is but they feel like you know one of those so uh yeah like i i don't know i think softbank gets a bit of a bad rep personally they um they definitely have their moments but they people like the the drama and forget about some of the wins i think too easily I think that's fair. And I think also, you know, all the things that have happened with WeWork, well, WeWork, you know, maybe had some issues before the pandemic, but the pandemic was not anybody's fault, <laughs> which has caused WeWork an awful lot of its of, of its woes of, of late. Um, Miles, Jeff, do you, do you want to add anything else to that? Um, you know, SoftBank or uh, aside, or is there anything else do you think that we've missed on this idea of like digital mortgages and, and, and what you'd like to see perhaps? Yeah, I, I won't comment too much on SoftBank. Got a lot of friends there and a lot of respect <laughs> for the firm. Um, I mean, they have a different philosophy, right? Their philosophy is if I inject a lot of capital in this business, can I help it go at 10x, right? And there is a, mm-hmm. a, a question around which businesses can ingest that much capital. Um, if you gave Ramp, you know, $500 million, I mean, what would we do with that? And I think there are companies that can do good things and there are companies that, are, that can't do bad things. And I think Soft, SoftBank has, has had a hit or miss sometimes in finding which companies can. Um, I think the way that we think about funding is we think about strategic partnerships. And so, you know, the round that we raised, um, there was a ton of, of players in, in that round. And part of that was that each of these players were so in, in, essential in, in, in one part of our product or distribution or strategy um, and, and, and bringing people in um, less than having one huge uh, uh, player. But a lot of small players actually creates a lot of incentives, especially in a space where, where everyone can win. So. Uh, that's that's really our, our investment philosophy. And I think, you know, Eric and Kareem, our CEO and CTO, have done an incredible job uh, building those relationships and we're excited about it. I think we're seeing actually um, a much more of a move towards that as well, or, or certainly there's been a lot of talk about it, about um, uh brands choosing their investors for the advantages they can bring, not the advantages they say they can bring, because every investor would say, oh, we can do A, B, C, D, E and promise you the world. But actually thinking a lot more carefully about you know who you take money from and, and how they can help you beyond the funding. I think that's a trend that we're, we're definitely going to see uh, continue. 
Um, Miles, do you have a final word on this, or uh, shall I? Not, not much other than saying I completely agree that achieving that and getting that alignment and being very careful and considered about it is super important. Okay, I think that's something that we will keep an eye on, and um, I'm sure it will come back. I mean, I'll be proven right or wrong, won't I, in six months' time, so I'm sure somebody will hold me to task over it. Um, Okay, we are now getting towards the end of the show, and we're going to round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover today, but we think still deserve a shout-out. So, Simon, over to you first. Yeah, first one is from Finextra, and this is MasterCard unveiling a carbon calculator for banks. So they've teamed up with Swedish fintech Deconomy to develop a carbon calculator that banks can integrate into their apps to give customers a snapshot of the emissions generated by their purchases across different spend categories. Um, a MasterCard commissioned survey of more than 25,000 people from 24 countries shows that 54% of respondents see reducing their carbon footprint as more more important now. Uh, 58% have become more conscious about how their actions impact the environment than ever before. And Gen Z and millennials, 65%, of course, lead this trend. I mean, this is good. Um, generally, like let's let's try and save the planet. Let's not um, let's not be the the last generation on it. Let's leave it leave it better than we found it. I do think that uh, as I look at this, prefabbed products for banks to stick inside their apps is is an interesting way to go if you're a Mastercard or a Visa. And partnering with fintechs just makes a ton of sense for that. Uh, so this, I think, that's actually the trend that I take away from this as, as much as just how important it is to embed impact with everyday spend. And we've seen banks like Aspiration in the US and uh, Tomorrow Bank in Europe and many, many others start to really think about how do you connect your everyday activity, your everyday spend to your carbon impact. And and there could be there could be a lot of opportunity there. Um, and, and last word on this is as I sit back and I look at the amount of profit that banks throw off, you know, they're struggling to grow their top line, their costs are continuing to increase, they're very much seen as a yield stock, and that profit is all going back to, to shareholders. Uh, actually, what if some of that profit was directed differently at things like this? Um, I mean, what impact could that have for the world? So a little bit of hope for the future, who knows? <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, next story is that Trustly is seeking a $9 billion, God, no, it's not. Trustly is seeking a 9 billion euro valuation on IPO. So Swedish payment firm Trustly has confirmed plans for an IPO that could value the company at up to 9 billion euro. The company will sell shares worth 785 million euro, part of which will be used to redeem preference shares and repay debt. Like other payments processes in Europe, Trustly is riding a wave of investor interest as the coronavirus pandemic has pushed more transactions online. Uh, The firm's most recent funding round, which was led by BlackRock in June of last year commanded a price tag of about €2 billion. Um, This is going to be a really interesting one because Trustly is one of those companies that does a lot of work on account-to-account payments. So it cuts out the the middle person, if you like, the the, the visas and the mastercards of this world. And it makes it easier for you to pay directly from your bank account, which potentially has a huge amount of advantages um, for consumers, for merchants. Um, and, and you know, it, it's a trend that we've been keeping an eye on and one that open finance is going to make uh, a, a lot easier for, for, for companies to enact if they want to do so. So I think how this IPO goes will be a real um, sort of test of, of how much appetite there is for kind of new payment mechanisms, particularly those that cut out the cards. Um, and in Europe, that's going to be really fascinating to watch. So, um, yeah, let's wait and see on that one. 
Thank you, Sarah. Um, story from Finextra, New Bank are pumping funds into their Mexican unit. So uh, Brazilian digital banking powerhouse New Bank is pumping more than $70 million into its Mexican subsidiary as it looks to expand its geographic reach. The company's identified Mexico as a prime target since uh, launching a credit card in the country last March. New Mexico has seen more than 1.5 million people request one. With an injection of funds from its parent and Wall Street banks, the Mexican unit is also eyeing a move into debit cards, personal loans, insurance, and loyalty programs. Launched just seven years ago, New Bank is already valued at $25 billion, with more than 30 million customers making among the five most valuable financial institutions in Latin America. I mean, no surprise to see New Bank continue to execute incredibly talented team. They've done so well um, in Brazil. And frankly, just went into a market that just uh, did not really cater for anybody but the wealthy from from a banking perspective. And we talked earlier about uh, how banks were sort of treating you as if you were lucky to take their product from them. In Brazil, that was exceptionally bad. They would make you wait outside of branches for 30 to 45 minutes. Um, and just by having a good, slick digital product, New Bank made a massive difference and, and have really executed. And um, you know, A16Z published this week that LATAM continues to be a massive Massive opportunity as hundreds of millions of people that are still, you know, really underbanked uh, and really good digital distribution is going to be a way forward. So, not surprised to see this. Um, New Bank could be just at the beginning of their growth spurt. So, going to be going to be one to watch for sure. Yeah, absolutely. New Bank. I wrote recently about how New Bank is um, the digital bank or the neo bank or the challenger bank, whatever you want, that everybody should be watching. Um, you know, it's it's absolutely fascinating what they've done and how well they've done it, more importantly. Um, and speaking of terminology, our and finally story this week is that France's central bank threatens the fintech industry with three years imprisonment for misusing the term neobank. The Prudential Control and Resolution Authority, ACPR, presumably I've done the English translation there, um, which operates under the Banque de France, has stated that the term neobank must necessarily qualify a credit institution, so i.e. a licensed institution. The regulator is wary firms are misleading users on their actual status by wrongly qualifying their businesses as neobanks. Uh, use of this word to qualify another activity other than that of a credit institution is prohibited by law, says the ACPR. It specifically calls out payment institutions and electronic money issuers as well as their agents and distributors. Uh, those fintechs which continue to mislead customers into thinking they are a credit institution are punishable by three years imprisonment and a fine of €375,000. The regulator has not suggested an alternative term for firms to use. Potential alternatives are already in circulation include digital challenger or digital banking startup. Now I have mixed feelings on this because it really annoys me when um, non-licensed banks call themselves banks. I always call them account providers because I, I really don't think that you should be saying I'm a bank when you haven't you aren't licensed to hold that, that person's money. When you're licensed to move that person's money but somebody else is holding it, I don't think you get to call yourself a bank. Do I think you should be sent to prison for three years for that? Probably not. I think there are other ways <laughs> to enforce making sure that customers understand what kind of institution they're using. I think particularly in the UK, where obviously if you are depositing your money with a licensed bank, it's insured up to £85,000. And I know that in the US, you have the, um, the federal deposit insurance that you know has a, has a similar you know uh, coverage on it. Um, but I, I just don't necessarily think that imprisonment is the right threat. Um, anyway, that's my two cents. What does everybody else think on this one? 
I want to know what else you could throw people into prison for that's a tiny crime. Like, it's startups that say they have lots of AI, but actually it's all just people behind the scenes. Uh, could that be a crime? Is it a tiny crime, though, if you say you're a bank, people give you loads of money, and then you lose their money, and they're not insured, and all those people suffer? Okay, maybe it's a big crime <laughs> if, if you didn't get away with it. But th- there are things like this that just feel like it, it's a it's a labeling thing. I don't know. That that AI thing, I've, I've just seen a lot of that lately where it's like, look at our AI and you look under the hood and it's two people on a bicycle and you're like, well, is it AI? Or, or is it is it if that then, is it, or is it yeah. if statements? Too many ifs. Uh, uh, yeah, from, from my point of view, it's a, it, it's a very interesting topic yeah? and uh, you know, there's a lot that we could talk about here. And I, I think the... Let's try and, I guess, sort of summarize it. I think there are a lot of inconsistencies, and, I, and I, I'd agree with Sarah from a point of view of people shouldn't describe themselves in a, in a way that is incorrect and accurate and, and misleading. Um, but but I, th- I think also, the, the moving on to the second part of it, the industry and the regulators have not caught up with innovation. And, and, and there, are, there are a number of parts there where I, I think it gets confusing because there, there are the good schemes like the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, there's the FDIC in the US, but we haven't found a way of really succinctly describing the protections that exist with other institutions as well. And we've, we've, we've got to find a way, or we've got to find a way of bringing them all in, in, in one, one scheme. Otherwise, as a consumer that quite rightly doesn't understand all of this, how on earth do you get, you, you, you understand what, how you are protected? So I think there's that aspect. And I think in as we go through it, I think the regulators should be better at managing the inconsistencies where people are using it where they shouldn't be and, and should, should stop it. I, th- I think then in terms of how business models have moved forwards, h- how do we change it? How do we adapt it? Because it, it's like with the term bank account. People know what a bank account is. And then if you give them, as you, you quite rightly say, Sarah, an account or an account provider, a customer may still refer to it as a bank account because it has a sort code, it has an account number, it has an IBAN. What do you what do you call it? Because we we've had that where customers say we say well it's not a bank account, it's one of these, and it does everything in this way. Um, oh, you mean a bank account? No, 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 we can't call it that. Um, so so I think there is there's a need there for the industry, the regulators, to come together to to solve this in a way that helps the end user. Yeah, I mean, it's been particularly brought into stark relief in, in Europe with um, what happened to Wirecard and uh, the impact that had on Wirecard's end users, many of whom thought that they had accounts and then they had to listen to their provider explain to them that actually they didn't hold an account with their provider. It was a third party who had their, their money in Germany who'd suddenly gone bust. And, and, you know, that was a very complicated explanation that consumers just, A, weren't ready for uh, and B, you know, d- didn't understand even when it was explained to them, I suppose is the point. Um, Jeff, I'll, I'll give you the final word on this one. I, I completely agree with what Miles said. I, I think the, it, this is a, a shortcut to uh, thinking about the broader picture and the broader problem around disclosures to consumers and regulation when money is being um, fronted and, and moved around. I mean, when you think about you know Venmo in the United States, the money's not being held by Venmo, right? It's, it's in an FDIC-insured FBO Wells Fargo account, and those things are, are very clear. I think you know a, a lot of respect for the French government. I'm actually from France originally. You probably can't tell with the accent, but they, they have <laughs> like this like this classic, you know, who are you protecting? Are you protecting the consumer? Or are you protecting the banks themselves? And and there's a lot of lobbyists um, that are coming from from those national banks, and, and and you see that all over the place. You see that with credit reporting and how it's completely um, dominated by those by those national banks, and you see that with with the, the the friction in terms of innovation and politics. So 
I, I, I do lean the other way, uh, Sarah. And, and I, the one example that comes to mind is there was an FDA um, lawsuit around almond milk and the fact that you can't call it milk if it's not coming from cows. I say this because like that was trying to protect dairy farmers, not consumers, right? And 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 I think there's there's some parallels there around how absurd it is to focus on that rather than focus on the underlying problems. Okay. Yeah, no, that's that's a fair point. And I and I would just like to say that my concerns are for the users of these services, not for the banks who might be concerned about the neobanks chipping away at their business. Um, all right. Well, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, Jeff, we'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's Jeff Charles on Twitter. Um, I'm just starting off uh, the, the, the career tweet storm. Um, but just in general, ramp.com, uh, very easy. Uh, would love your feedback on, on, on our website, on our product. And if you have any thoughts on, on, on this space, uh, please, please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. Brilliant. Miles, how about you? Yes, yeah, so you, can, you can find us at um, modularfinance.com, uh, drop the A um, from, the, from the modular. And um, I'm on LinkedIn, Miles uh, C. Stevenson. Perfect. And Simon? Uh, you can find all things 11FS at 11FS.com and you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter, tweeting about all things fintech, always. <laughs> Never stops. <laughs> and as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Um, thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and it helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or you can email podcasts at 11 Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.